Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Rock and Roll History, the podcast where we stage dive head first in all the hits, misses, and often overlooked songs and stories throughout the history of rock and roll. I'm your host, Topo Chito. But who cares? Come on, everybody. Let's go rock and roll. Today's episode is a special one. It's the 10th episode. Is that a milestone? I don't know. I feel like it is. So today, I'm going to shake things up a bit. I have a very special episode planned for you. A few years back, Spotify told me during one of those end of the year things that, hilariously enough, my favorite music wasn't even rock and roll. It was something called Brill Building Pop. What the hell is that, I thought. I must admit, I never really heard of the genre, and I'm almost embarrassed to say I wasn't sure what it was. But as I dug into it, I found out I was very familiar with it without even knowing. And my guess is you are too. Turns out that I love this Brill Building sound so much so that I decided to look it up and see what a Brill Building was. And then my mind exploded. Now I can practically hear some of you right now saying like, Wait a minute, pop, pop music? A building? That's not what I came here for. That's not very rock and roll. But okay. Okay, calm down. Strap in. Give me a minute and let me explain. Our show today starts off in the year 1958. Sputnik 1, the first ever satellite in human history, was launched as part of the Soviet space program and had just come crashing down to Earth as the United States launched their first satellite, Explorer 1, thus kickstarting the space race. This same year, the LEGO company patented their design for the first ever LEGO brick, a design that is still compatible with the bricks of today. 1958 also marks the year the Brooklyn Dodgers officially became the Los Angeles Dodgers, expanding Major League Baseball to the West Coast, as the LA Coliseum approved a two-year agreement allowing the Dodgers to use their facility while they waited for the construction of Dodger Stadium to be completed. This exciting new chapter for the team occurred just as their future Hall of Fame catcher, Roy Campanella, is tragically paralyzed in a car accident. 1958 was a tumultuous time for rock and roll to say the least. Chuck Berry would release one of the most important rock and roll songs of all time this year, Johnny Be Good, but would soon be arrested and jailed for transporting a minor across state lines. Mr. Alan Moondog Freed was arrested and charged with inciting a riot, as mentioned in episode three of the show. Little Richard himself had just enrolled in Bible college and denounced rock and roll for his large contribution to it. All that, and then the public discovered that Jerry Lee Lewis married his 13-year-old cousin, which resulted in him being banned from the airwaves and having all of his tours canceled. And then that brings us, of course, to our old friend, Elvis Presley, who had just enlisted in the U.S. Army, bringing a halt to his hip-swinging music career. John Lennon, being a huge Elvis fan growing up in Liverpool, is quoted as saying that this was the moment when Elvis Presley actually died. Another thing I think I should point out was that shortly after this year, there was uh, the tragic plane crash that took the lives of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. This day became known as the day the music died, and many historians note that 1958 was right around the time that the first initial wave of rock and roll had died. Now, I'm sorry to bum you out with all this. I know I started off this episode talking about pop music, and now I'm saying rock and roll is dead, but if you stick with me, you will see how it all fits together. I said I was going to shake things up, didn't I? So here we go. Our show today isn't about a single person or even a specific song, but a building. 
Okay, this all might sound a little confusing to you, so let's just hop in the time machine and head back to the year 1958 and find out who or uh, what this big, beautiful building really is. So here we are in May of 1958, standing outside the Art Deco style Brill Building at 1619 Broadway on 49th Street in the theater district of Manhattan, New York City. We're just a few blocks away north of uh, Times Square and a little further uptown from the historic musical area known as Tin Pan Alley, and that's over on 28th Street. Tin Pan Alley, if you're not familiar, is where American popular music, or pop music as we know today, was first created. It was there that songwriters and publishers first learned and devised different ways to promote their music. Back in those days, they would sell sheet music, and if you wanted to hear a specific song at home, you had to play it yourself on the piano, if you were fortunate enough to have one. All sorts of music came from Tin Pan Alley. Latin, blues, ragtime, jazz, even show tunes. Quoting TinPanAlley.org, they say, As Tin Pan Alley influenced American music, American music in turn influenced the world. Pioneering African-American composers such as Cecil Mack, the writer of the Charleston, worked on Tin Pan Alley. Irving Berlin started here too, as well as Albert von Tilsner, composer of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Singers as diverse as Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Al Jolson, Fred Astaire, they all sang music originating from Tin Pan Alley. Rumor has it that even Bob Dylan wrote his first successes while he was living in Tin Pan Alley. Whenever you hear contemporary music, is likely to be descended from Tin Pan Alley roots. And yes, that even goes for rock and roll. So to bring it back, by 1958, Tin Pan Alley was beginning to disperse out to different areas as new musical stylings were being introduced to the world. Many of those early music publishers are now occupying this 11-story office building right here in front of us, known as the Brill Building. This Brill Building was built in 1931 and originally was called the Allen E. Lefcourt Building. Not to be confused with Alfred E. Newman, Alan E. Lefcourt was the son of the original builder, Abraham E. Lefcourt, a big-time real estate developer of 1920s New York. A few years after being built, the building was purchased by the Brill Brothers, a pair of haberdashers, and has since been known as the Brill Building for the business they operated on the street-level floor. Now before we enter the Brill, let's turn around and head up and over across the street to another office building at 1650 Broadway. When people say Brill Building Pop, they're not only referring to that one single building, but also a few other buildings in the surrounding area. Weird, I know, but I think the Brill Building just had the coolest name, so that's what they stuck with. The other buildings are just referred to by their addresses. So as we head inside and upstairs of 1650 Broadway to the office spaces, just down one of the halls we can see a 21-year-old man by the name of Don Kirshner and an older gentleman named Al Nevins. It looks like they're unpacking furniture for their brand new business venture together. Al Nevins was a successful composer, musician, and recording artist who had many pre-rock era hits as a member of the Three Sons, a popular pre-rock musical group who were known to be the favorite of First Lady Mamie Eisenhower. The previous year, young Don Kirshner managed to sell Nevins on the idea that publishing new material for teenage rock and roll record buyers would be an extremely profitable venture and got him to agree to start the business. 
Correct. They decided to name the company Aldon Music, a combo of their two names, and they headed to the part of town where songwriters could be found. So they began to unpack, and before Al could even sit down on their piano bench and strike a key, there was a knock on the door, and in walks two cartoonish-looking characters, a pair of songwriters from Brooklyn named Howard Greenfield and Neil Sedaka. Yes, Neil Sedaka. They had just written a song for the Cookies called Passing Time, and it wasn't quite a hit, but they persuaded Al and Don that they had a few up their sleeve that were certain to be. They then sat at the piano for an audition and played a few songs including Stupid Cupid, The Diary, and Calendar Girl. Alan Don's eyes lit up with dollar signs, and they immediately bought the songs and signed the pair to Al Don Records, which was now officially in business. And rock and roll was now officially infiltrating this side of town, a part of the city that was full of the old nomadic songwriters who were migrating over from Tin Pan Alley. Back over in the Brill Building, there was Frank Sinatra Incorporated, and they were not happy about this takeover of new music. Frank's new ABC TV show was a flop, and his records were beginning to slip down the charts. And when asked about it in a recent magazine interview, Sinatra vehemently denounces rock and roll as the most brutal, ugly, desperate, and vicious form of expression he had ever heard. Music for delinquents being written by cretinous goons. A couple of these cretinous goons he was referring to were none other than our good old friends Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who you should all be familiar with by now. And if you're not, then stop what you're doing right now, pause this, and go listen to episode 7 as a prerequisite. So Lieber and Solar had just moved to New York City the previous year. The songwriting duo had recently started their own record label, Spark Records, and brought their newest recording project with them, the group formerly known as The Robins, now calling themselves The Coasters. These two sultans of songwriting began working for many of the labels around town, as well as Atlantic Records. Lieber and Stoller were now not only writing songs, but writing entire albums, planning everything out down to the instrumentation and production of the records. Up to this point, music had been this whole process. It was always written by a songwriter, then passed on to the musicians to play, then they taken out of their hands and recorded and mixed by a producer somewhere else. Lieber and Stoller were changing the game and were the first real players to break through the old Tin Pan Alley mold. The Brill Building was full of these old-timer, Broadway, Hollywood composer types belonging to ASCAP, the oldest and most exclusive performing rights organization in the world, whose membership was hard to get unless you were in the old boy network and they all looked down upon country, western, and rock and roll music, of course. Gene Autry is quoted as saying, it was easier to get into the White House than it was to get into ASCAP. There was BMI, on the other hand, and they were an organization that was started by radio broadcasters. They didn't look down upon rock and roll, so this gave a new generation of songwriters an in, and they all began to flock towards the Brill Building and the surrounding areas. This ASCAP BMI clash would start a heated rivalry amongst all the songwriters in town, with everyone trying to write the next big hit. Most of these BMI songwriters would head to that other nameless building up the way, at 1650 Broadway, home to the newly founded Alden Music. So Lieber and Stoller were bouncing around town selling song and album concepts, while Neil Sedaka and Howard Greenfield were cranking out hits for Alden Music. In 1959, Neil Sedaka had a hit song called O oh Carol. But before this hit, Neil was really struggling to write songs. Here's a quote from Neil describing the situation. In Billboard magazine, there's a page called The Hits of the World, 
I still have it. And I looked at the top songs in each country and bought the records and analyzed why they were hit records. There was a certain drum beat, a certain guitar lick, uh, the harmonic rhythm where the chords changed. Girls' names were very big. I took all of these ingredients and I put them together and I came up with... Many look at Neil Sedaka to be the Justin Bieber of his time, including Neil himself. I was the Justin Bieber of the 50s. This initiative that Neil took, however, would be the start of something so powerful, a pop star writing, performing, and recording their own songs. This was groundbreaking, and surprisingly something that didn't happen up until this point. This might be one of the biggest turning points in music history, something that would go on down the line and be responsible for inspiring countless bands, even the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, to do the same thing. Neil's hit Oak Carol was a game changer, not only for him and album music, but for pop and rock and roll music as a whole. Things really began to take off and more and more songwriters continued to flock to the area, looking for their piece of the pie. O'Carroll, as it turned out, was written about Neil's ex-girlfriend, Carol King, a rock and roll fan from Brooklyn who had recently married a man named Jerry Goffin. They married in a Jewish ceremony on Long Island when she was only 17 years old. Shortly after the marriage came a baby carriage and she became pregnant and had to drop out of college to begin working. The two parents began to write songs together hoping to make ends meet. Upon hearing O Carol, the pair came up with a response song called O Neil as a tongue-in-cheek jab at the singing, dancing Bieber boy. And Carol was no slouch either. She began playing music when she was only four years old, and she had already had some songwriting experience penning songs with her friend in college. Her friend was named Paul Simon, and he would go on to join the Tin Pan Alley crowd and form Simon and Garfunkel. Upon hearing this musical rebuttal of O'Carroll, Neil was tickled pink and convinced Don Kirshner to give the songwriting duo an audition. Upon hearing their material, Kirshner immediately gave them a contract. King and Goffin were eager to begin their songwriting career together and make their ends meet. According to HistoryOfRock.com, King and Goffin's songs were always impeccably structured. Their music was for teens and dealt with themes of love, rejection, and jealousy, and teenagers dealing with them in their own terms. Carol's heart-tugging melodies and Jerry's lyrics captured the tone and vernacular of their audience's inner experience with uncanny accuracy. Carol had a gift for arrangement, knowing how to build a song to the hook through subtle chord manipulation and instrumental counterpoint. To help sell her songs, she began cutting low-cost demos to demonstrate her ideas to the producers. These demos were so good that often the producers only had to copy them with proper instrumentation to have a hit record. Late one night, shortly after their new beginning began, the couple found a note left by Kirshner saying that he needed a song for a female singing group named The Shirelles. Eager to please, the two got to it and worked through the night. By morning, they had a song and delivered it to Kirshner. The resulting song was Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? And this would be the first of many hits for Carole King and Jerry Goffin. Will You Love Me Tomorrow was not only a significant point in their respective careers, but the song also had a massive impact on the music world as a whole. 
This song was released in 1961, and it was the very first time a song reached number one on the pop charts by a black women's group. Not only is it important for civil rights, but it was also the first time the song got to the top of the charts where the female protagonist came off as a more mature woman requiring parody in a relationship rather than some cutesy little teen bop like Connie Francis and Stupid Cupid. Not that there's anything wrong with Connie Francis, her music is great, but this song was a defining moment for women in music history and is an anthem that represents female strength, independence, and equality. As a result, this broke open the floodgates for what would become known as the Girl Group. Girl groups from the likes of Motown's Marvelettes, Martha and the Vandellas, the Supremes, to Phil Spector's Wall of Sound with the Crystals, the Blossoms, and the Ronettes. And of course Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller with the Exciters, Dixie Cups, and the tough and rebellious Shangri-Las. The role females have played in rock and roll is far too commonly overlooked, which is such a crime. Anyway, many of the songs that would become big hits for these girl groups were written by another young lady who also hailed from Brooklyn named Ellie Greenwich. Greenwich found herself bouncing around the different buildings in the area trying to find an audition or have someone listen to one of her songs. It is said that working in the Brill building in the early 60s, you could write a song or make the rounds of publishers until someone bought it. Then you could go to another floor or get a quick arrangement on a lead sheet for 10 bucks, get some copies made at the duplication office, book an hour at the demo studio, hire some of the musicians and singers that hung around, and finally cut a demo of the song. Then you could take it around the building and then to all the different record companies in the building, the publishers, the artist managers, or even to the artists themselves. And then if you made a deal, there were radio promoters ready and available to sell the record and Ellie Greenwich found herself in the thick of it. Here's a clip of Neil Sedaka again from the great show on Netflix called This Is Pop, explaining what it was like working there during this time. I continued at the Brill Building five days a week. I was writing with Howie Greenfield our own songs. The walls were very thin, and when we were writing, strangely, the songs sounded very much alike because you can hear the person next door very, very vividly. It was good competition. It was good. We, we were all very motivated, and creative people bounce off each other. It was through these thin walls that Ellie Greenwich was first discovered. While auditioning one of these little cubby rooms, Lieber and Stoller happened to be in the next one over and heard her singing a song through the wall. They thought it was Carol King and ran over to say hello. Much to their surprise, though, it wasn't King, and it was just Ellie Greenwich. So they just signed her on the spot. They gave her her first job. She began writing songs here and there, but her biggest hit would come after she married another songwriter who was floating around the area at the time, a man named Joel Edelberg. Joel was also from Brooklyn, and by the time he got to the Brill, he was calling himself Jeff Barry. It's said that the songs... Uh, that Barry and Greenwich came up with were attuned to the hearts and minds of young America with a natural sense of teenage idiom. They would provide hits not only to Lieber and Stoller but also to Phil Spector, the tycoon of teen, who you should also be familiar with at this point. The songs they would supply Phil Spector with would be To Do Ron Wrong, Then He Kissed Me, Baby I Love You, Be My Baby, all nuclear bombshell hits for girl groups that sang them. Some other writers of note who were around at this time include Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde. Barry Mann had 
previously co-written a song with Jerry Goffin, actually, called Who Put the Bomb in the Bomb, Shabomb, Shabomb, Who Put the Bomb in the Bit, Bit, Okay, I'm sorry. Anyway, he eventually got on staff at Alden Music. While working at Alden, he then met and married Cynthia Wilde, who worked across the street at a publishing company in the Brill Building. Once the two paired up, they, they too began writing big hits for the girl groups, including Uptown and He's Sure the Boy I Love by The Crystals and Walking in the Rain and You Baby for the Ronettes. The importance of girl groups should not be understated or written off as some simple bubblegum teeny bopper music. The hooks, melodies, and lyrical content of the music by these masterful songwriters and performers would go on to influence American music and culture for the greater good. Just like Tin Pan Alley, these songs would influence American music, and American music in turn would influence the world. This specific era of music on the rock and roll timeline is historically and incorrectly usually remembered as this weird gray area where rock and roll went into hibernation and nothing really happened until the Beatles blew up the world by playing on the Ed Sullivan show. But this couldn't be more wrong. The importance of these timeless songs is undeniable. It bridges the gap between the two periods while simultaneously passing the torch across it. It packaged the upbeat, youthful music of the time in a way that prepped and primed an audience of rock-hungry teenagers who were ready to just devour the next big craze, craftily paving the road that the British invasion bands just rode in on to dominate the world. As the early years of the wild and dangerous rock and roll was falling apart at the seams, this handful of songwriters stepped up to the plate and figured out a new way to not only package the music but enrich the sound of the genre as a whole. And then, so there you have it, folks. Brill Building Pop. While it doesn't only refer to just that one building, it kind of represents that part of town, at a more specific point in time, where pop and rock and roll were melded together by arguably some of the greatest songwriters, breathing new life into the genre and having an audience ready for the geniuses like Lennon McCartney and the rest that would follow. If this subject interests you, I'd like to recommend the book Always Magic in the Air, The Bomp and Brilliance of the Braille Building Era by Ken Emerson. The book goes deep into this important and historic point in time. It's extremely interesting and where I got a little bit of the info for this episode. It's the perfect book to read after finishing Hound Dog, the Libra and Stoller book that I recommended in their episode. I'll have it all linked on the site. Check it out. So you see what I did there? I shook things up in honor of our 10th episode. Early pioneers like Sister Rosetta Tharp and Chuck Berry blasted open the doors while DJs like Alan Freed egged on the teenagers to rock and roll along with singers and performers like Little Richard and Eddie Cochran, inspiring a few kids, whether they be two boys from Los Angeles or a group of kids from Brooklyn, former home of the Dodgers, writing songs for girl groups and captured in the wall of sound by producers like Phil Spector that opened up the doors for bands that sang and performed their own material like the Beatles and the British Invasion groups. In turn, this would go on to inspire literally every band that came after them. Years and years of music from every genre, punk, new wave, and beyond. It really is pretty amazing, the amount of impact this one little genre had on human history on our little planet. And you know, I think this is the perfect place to end my episode. In fact, I could just end the whole show right here all together since I wrapped it up so nicely in the end with a neat little bow. Mentioning all the episodes and everything. But I'm not going to do that to you. There's way more rock and roll history to cover, and I'm just getting started. However, 
I am going to take a small break for the holidays and to you know work on the next few episodes I have planned. So please stick around. I have so much in store for y'all. In the meantime, please check out our website, rockandrollhistory.com. It's where I post all the show notes and leave links to some of the cool things that I find that I think you get a kick out of while researching the episode. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to email me anytime at rnrhistorypod at gmail.com. Follow the show if you aren't already. It'll really help the show grow. And leave a review on the podcast player if you're feeling nice. And if you're feeling lazy, just tell a friend about the show. I'm sure you know someone who would dig it. So spread the word. Tell your friends about me. And stay tuned. So that concludes another episode of Rock and Roll History. Woo! Ten in the books, baby. Ten more to go and ten more after that. Before I let go, I'd like to say thank you for your loyal support. The show would not be possible without you. I love you guys. Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Happy New Year's. And remember to rock and roll! I was the Justin Bieber of the 50s. 